0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And we're going to
1: discuss doors, gates, and portals, and Rubicons. I think this is a terrific topic, uh, Jesse and Jim, I... I I've been thinking about doors a long time. I uh, I tend to think about individual phenomena, uh, and I mean that in a technical sense. I'll talk about in a second. In what's called a phenomenological way, for instance, uh, we all know that that white in some cultures represents purity. We know that uh, that water may represent either uh, rejuvenation or, in some forms, like an ocean with no sides to it, no shores, the dissolution of the soul. Um, we could look at doors the same way, and knowing that we were going to have this conversation, I took a little time to think it through. Um, Edmund Husserl, Searle, uh, who's the father of phenomenology, defines phenomenology... Defines a phenomenon, I should say, as an intentional act of consciousness. And he means intentional, not as will, you know, I intend to do this, but as the opposite of extensional. So he spells it with an S-I-O-N, not a T-I-O-N. It's uh, an intentional act of consciousness. So, for instance, according to uh, to common lore, when... Uh, the conquistadors uh, conquistadores arrived in what we now call south america uh, they were mistaken for mythical creatures because mm-hmm. the natives did not realize that the men and the horse come apart um they saw them as one phenomenon if you ask an american when uh world war ii happened um he may say uh, 1941 to 1945 if you ask a european he may say 1939 to 1945 if you ask some people who have a very precise idea of history they may say september 1st 1939 until blah. blah. whereas other people will say no wars build up over time the first day of the shooting isn't the day we define phenomena consciously so what kind of a phenomenon is a door So it seemed to me that there were four things about doors that are worth bearing in mind. First of all, they are artificial. That is, they are made by other beings, maybe other human beings, but certainly other beings. Um, An alternative to this would be, say, Narcissus looking at his reflection in the surface of the lake. The surface of the lake can be thought of as a boundary, but it's not artificial, and the only way to make it into uh, whatever it functions as in the story of Narcissus is for him to make a projection onto it. The second thing, after it being artificial, is that doors are passages for the whole body. Is, we, as whole human beings, go through doors. This is as opposed to, say, windows. Where we may only look through or it's inconvenient to get through with our whole bodies or we can stick our arms out, for instance, by serving food through a, 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 a door in a, a window in a wall um, in a downtown area rather than having a seated restaurant. But it's not the same as having a whole bodies go through. Third, doors are typically understood as two way passages. Uh, This is opposed, say, to drains, which are passages and may represent a a boundary, um, but you can only go one way, uh, or whatever goes, goes only one way. Um, Quicksand (laughs) works like that. Fourth, um, usually doors potentiate horizontal movement, Um, trapdoors and manhole covers We don't really think of them so much as doors. In fact, we have to put special words on them to make us understand them in the same um, artificial boundary marking way that we understand just doors, full stop, doors. So they've got these four qualities. They're artificial. They're whole body passages. They are two way passages. And uh, they are horizontal Now, I'd like to put those together. Horizontal is how human beings move. We don't fly, although we could. We can fall and we can jump. Uh, We typically don't swim, although we're able to, and we can certainly drown. Um, Some would say, uh, anthropologists have, that the story of Oedipus is the single most pervasive myth in Western culture. Oedipus manages to return to his birthplace only by successfully answering the riddle of the Sphinx. The riddle of the Sphinx, if you don't answer it right, leaves to you being strangled to death by the Sphinx. Sphinx is from the Greek word sphingin, which means to strangle, and it's cognate with our word sphincter. Um, the Sphinx asks anyone who passes by what goes on four in the morning two at noon, and three at night. And everybody gets it wrong, but Oedipus gets it right and is allowed to pass. His answer is man, by which we're supposed to understand mankind. Um, That is, as an infant, you crawl on all fours. In your full prime, you walk on your two feet. And in your old age, you need a cane or some other support. Hence, you go on three. So this founding myth of Western culture has as its central riddle the central notion that in one's prime, a human being is defined as someone who walks on two legs. In fact, Aristotle calls a human being a hairless biped. Um, So what's a door? Originally, you know, before we worried about having wheelchairs go through them and so on, a door was a place for a human being to walk through on two legs and then to come back. And when closed, to seal oneself off and when open, to go from one domain to another. In other words, we can go through this artificial boundary from one world to another. Okay, a bit more of, uh, of Eric in his professorial mode. <laughs> the word world... Uh, which today I think most people sort of by default think of as earth, you know, terra firma, um, etymologically has an older meaning. It comes from Old English werald. The wer is the wer meaning man, as in werewolf. And the ald means age, as in an eon, an era, as in all lang syne, old long since. Um, the werald is the age of man, the age of man. And we still use the word world in that way when we say, um, in the world of advertising today, um, in the world of politics today, in the world of economics today, that is the word world originally means the social domain, the context that human beings create for themselves. So if you open the gate to the prison, so that someone who is confined can be liberated. He's gone from the world of the incarcerated to the world of the free. Doors, I'm suggesting, as phenomena, when we think about what a door is and how it functions, a door is an artificial boundary between two different worlds made by human beings artifice also and what we have to understand when we think of going through a door is what kind of social change has occurred for the individual who does or does not can or is unable to go through that door and with this in mind I started thinking about doors in literature and frankly it all seemed to work that doors as a phenomenon represent the passage from one humanly defined world, or I should say consciously defined world, to another consciously defined world. Even if if that world does not at first blush appear to be consciously defined, for example, if one just has a cottage in the woods and one opens the door to go from indoors to outdoors, that outdoor world in which you are no longer protected or from which you are no longer confined, um, that outdoor world has a different social meaning than the world inside the cottage or inside the gingerbread house or what have you. So I'd like to suggest that we can see this as um, a definition for how in our understanding doors function and then see how that function becomes of use in different works of art that's sounds my thesis good. for the morning
2: <laughs> sounds good
0: you've thought it through I think I think we've pretty much I, I, I got some good stuff out of that um, I, 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 I especially like the the idea of the artificial um, thing I, I hadn't thought of it before but of course you're right and that made me think about the other um, the others on our list: gates and portals and rubicons, and the, the one that's unstated for me, and I think one that's in the in the the idea for this show in the first place is is windows as opposed to doors. And uh, I probably um, started thinking hard about this after we did a. I think Mr. Jim Moon, you were on the show I did with um, another person about. Uh, the Wonderful Window, were you on that show by no, Lord Dunsany? Okay. Well, Lord Dunsany's A Wonderful Window is a, is a great story, very short, about a guy who uh, buys a window, uh, has it mounted on his wall in his home, and then uh, looks through it, um, which seems like a relatively simple thing. However, the land that he sees through the window is not the land outside of his home. It's uh, some other land, and he becomes enthralled by this world, and and looking through it, he discovers one day that the land that he's been loving so much has been invaded by foreign invaders, and he wants to go out there and help, because he loves that world so much, but when he breaks the window, the world is not there. That's basically the story. He wants to turn his window into a door.
1: Wow. That's really good.
0: It is. Um,
1: And I I like what you're doing, if you don't mind my my saying. it. Um, it, It sort of suggests why it's useful to take a phenomenological approach to these things. It's exactly because windows and doors aren't meant to function in the same way for us that the move from one to the other actually destroys a world. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think you're giving a very rich example of the utility of taking a phenomenological approach to doors
2: mm-hmm.
0: in, in trying to turn a window into a door. He's, he's t- breaking his own window. Um, you know, we, I have a sliding door, um, but I call it a sliding door, not a sliding window. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: yeah. um, there are other ways for doors to work um, in science fiction. Uh, Dunsany is uh, usually thought of as a fantasy writer. In science fiction, um, Robert Heinlein is often considered to be um, an outstanding stylist, uh, certainly of the old school or the traditional school or the uh, the golden age of science fiction. He was asked uh, at a, a conference, uh, that the, the transcript of which has been reproduced, um, how you define, how he defines the style of science fiction, uh, the writing style of science fiction. He said that he didn't know for sure um, how to define the style. He wasn't even sure absolutely how to define science fiction, but he said he could give the ideal science fiction sentence. And he said something that sounds almost the same as a sentence that he used in Beyond This Horizon, which was published in 1942 in serial form. Um, the door dilated and a voice inside said, come in, Felix, is from the opening page of Beyond This Horizon. What Heinlein said in that meeting, in that, that panel discussion, was the door Iris open before him and he walked through. And the reason that that Heinlein used this example, he explained, is that you didn't have to have any info dump to suggest we're not in that world. It's not our world. We don't have doors that iris open. Second reason it's terrific is that um, that shows us that that world is one with a lot more energy and more advanced technology than we have because we would not waste energy on having a power-driven door just any old place. We we do in uh, stores because we want people to be able to carry bundles out easily, but in our homes and so on, we, we don't tend to do that. Um, so this little change of verb, instead of saying the door opened before him and he walked through the door. iris opened open before him and he walked through that one little change makes it a science fiction world. I think Heinlein, this master of style has got it right, but notice of all of the things he could have picked to make us know that we are in a different world. He picked an example of a door. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is how Beyond This Horizon, which again means going to another world, to a place previously invisible, begins. Hamilton Felix let himself off at the 13th level of the Department of Finance, mounted a slideway to the left. That word slideway, Heinlein invented, and it also has that wonderful feature of letting us know we're in some new kind of world. Now, of course, we have slideways in airports. Mounted a slideway to the left and stepped off the strip at a door marked Bureau of Economic Statistics Office of Analysis and Prediction. Director, private. He punched the door with a code combination and awaited face check. It came promptly. The door dilated and a voice inside said, come in, Felix. Forty years later. Here's the opening to Heinlein's novel Friday, 1982. As I left the Kenya beanstalk capsule, he was right on my heels. He followed me through the door, leading to customs, health, and immigration. As the door contracted behind him, I killed him. What Heinlein is doing with doors over a period of 40 years is to make them absolutely clear markers of the move from one world to the other. In this case, from the character's outside world to his inside world from outside of the Bureau of Economic Statistics to inside the director's office or Friday, who happens to be female from outside the beanstalk capsule to inside a place where she can perform her, her murderous mission. Um, but also those doors are the way to get from the reader's armchair world into this fantastic world being constructed in this case, by a science fiction writer, in Dunsany's case, by a fantasy writer.
0: Mm-hmm. Mr. Jim Moon, have you got any thoughts on Doors?
3: Um, I find what Eric was saying about them being an artificial boundary marker very interesting. Um, I mean, one of my big interests is folklore, and um, you have the ideas of liminality, and traditionally in folklore across different cultures, once you stray out of the bounds of your own established civilized world the village or the town you live in you're into the wilderness and in folklore you have lots of things about crossing rivers or wandering into the forest you're crossing a liminal barrier from the world of the mortals and the humans to a wild world where anything might be where all kinds of gods and monsters live um i find interesting kind of in fantasy fiction you get doors fulfilling that kind of role as a liminal space mm-hmm. um particularly as you know we move away from agrarian rural societies into industrial living suddenly you know people going adventures often go through doors it's a way of getting to somewhere that's off the map um the wardrobe in c.s lewis's narnia mm-hmm. is a disguised door you have the um It's the H.G.O.L. short story, The Door in the Wall, which we've uh, done a previous show on. Um, And you also get it in Lovecraft, the idea of... um, uh, He has... Well, it's actually an Augustine extrapolation of his notes with the gable window, about having some curious glass, which actually opens a portal to other places and other times. Uh, And also, in Dreams in the Witch House, the creation of um, secret doors by drawing certain lines that allow the user to pass through into... (laughs) completely different planes and different dimensions and it's there's something about the kind of, there's a mystery about a locked door I mean in detective you have the locked the locked room mystery of a crime takes place but mm-hmm. it was in a sealed environment you know, how could it have been done that's the puzzle for the detective but you also have it in sort of, you know other, other genres as well of kind of where uh, you know, a door anywhere might lead to somewhere unexpected be it a pirate's tray, a robber's you know, a, war, <clears throat> a Robert's Lair, or you know, even you know, another dimension, another world might open up behind it. Um, I mean, there's a wonderful children's book called The Secret Garden about a, a boy who finds a, a Wellsian door in the world that leads to this uh, kind of semi-magical garden <laughs> that mm-hmm. you know proves to be a salvation. It, it's an interesting I- idea. They say this once you create an artificial boundary and you put a put a door in it, suddenly that You know what's behind the door could be could be anything, and that really seems to fire people's imaginations.
0: Yeah, it made me think of you. I've heard you say it a number of times in your podcast about how uh, some creatures or some mythical monsters can't cross rivers, and that bringing it to the city, uh, Dracula can't pass your doorstep right without your your permission. It's not the door that stops him. It's the permission into the quote-unquote liminal space, right?
1: Well, as I, well, said, last year I said... Vampires are interesting like that. <laughs> the world is a social context. Mm-hmm. So he, Dracula... Can't get into your world without your permission. Although that's actually not true for Dracula. It's part of I'm the, just vampires. <laughs> the vampires, but Dracula does, after all, come in. And the first time we see Dracula come in in Stoker's novel, um, he's crawling down the outside of a building and comes in through the window, mm-hmm. um, which shows how unnatural he is, as uh, in his defiance of both gravity and the phenomenology of doors, uh, in order to come in and be with a woman. He's crawling upside down as well.
0: Well, since he's not, so she's
1: going down, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's not climbing like a big Well, man, you know, he's right? batty. Yeah, he's really, pretty <laughs> batty. That's an
3: interesting sort of barometer of uh, a character or a being's wrongness is the fact that, you know, they will enter a room through an upstairs window. It's an instant almost subliminal sort of marker that the, this is a not an ordinary person or sub- a if, you, if you're up if you, yeah if you if you're in the upstairs room and someone comes into your room via the window there's something up there that, you know there might be spider-man someone who has powers for good or it could be something a lot less a um, lot less pleasant
1: indeed mm-hmm. it could be it could be someone coming down the chimney um, <laughs> oh oh, oh <laughs> or in the uh, murders in the room Morgue, it could be someone stuffed up the chimney mm-hmm But I think you're absolutely right, Jim. It's uh, a real marker of the unnatural. I
3: I recently did a bit bit on um, the law of changelings. And in many cultures, you find when you kind of get exercise, the changeling baby and get your own child back, the fairy imp leaves by flying up the chimney or up the smokestack of the oven. And again, it's kind of it's it's showing their oddness that they leave the house not by a door
1: like a normal person. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, In one of the uh, the versions of Little Red Riding Hood, uh, the wolf uh, climb once he has been disemboweled of uh, red and granny uh, climbs on top of the roof and falls into uh, the chimney and lands in the cooking pot. So he is dispatched by typical female means. Cooking, um, but but he does it by trying to get back into the house in a way that you're just not supposed to do, as you say. Um, I was thinking about Alice in Wonderland um, and through the Looking Glass. Um, going down the rabbit hole is clearly liminal, um, and most people think of uh, Alice of Wonderland as uh, the place Alice arrives in after, as they say, she's gone down the rabbit hole. And we see that, we hear that phrase a lot. Well, it went down the rabbit hole. But of course, anybody who reads uh, Alice in Wonderland carefully realizes that Alice has begun fantasizing before she's ever left the banks of the river. The bank of the river where her sister is reading a book without uh, pictures or dialogue in it, and so what's the conversation in it, so what's the use of that, young Alice thinks. The side of a river is also a liminal domain Mm -hmm. and while she is sitting there dazing uh, and i mean the pun because she's also wondering whether or not it was worth the trouble of making a daisy chain um of flowers uh and the word daisy has to do etymologically it's god's eye it's the day's eye it's an image of god controlling things um look at the flower and it's uh, kind of clear how it got that name um While she's there, she sees a white rabbit go by. And she says, although it wasn't so odd to see a white rabbit in a waistcoat with a watch, it was odd to hear him say, I'm late, I'm late. (laughs) That happens before she goes down the rabbit hole. So when she goes down the rabbit hole from one liminal marker, the riverbank, to another liminal marker, that hole in the ground, she is making crossings. But they are not the same as doors. It is only when she arrives, falls down to the bottom of the rabbit hole and lands on that heap of dried leaves that she finds herself in a little room that has a door in it. And the door is one she can't get to because she's not tall enough to get to the key that's on the table. And we all remember her getting up and, you know, getting taller and smaller until eventually she manages to get through the, the, the door And that's when she's actually in wonderland. That's when she's in a world that is entirely a construction of her mind, although her mind is well salted with the Victorian premises that have been drilled into her since birth. Um, So it's that door that says, aha, now you're in. Now you're in. It's not the falling down. That's why the door is so important there. It's the artificial thing. It's the thing that was made by a person. The person in this case being Alice. Interestingly, although doors in theory can be used in both directions, Alice can't seem to figure out how to get out of Wonderland. And so at the end, uh, she just looks at all of those cards and says, well, you're nothing but a pack of cards and flings them, you know, into the air as she grows taller and taller and she opens her eyes and she's back on the riverbank and goes running off. And her sister talks about it years later, we're told in the last lines. So the fact that the same person who created the door can't figure out how to really use the door, it's really kind of wonderful because it shows us Alice's inability to actually grow through these projective experiences. They are for us, terrific projective experiences But for her, they're kind of limited to what she can do with her own imagination, which is nifty, but not enough to be able to control her world, hence an opening for a sequel (laughs) through the looking glass. (laughs) So I think looking at the door and how it does and doesn't function and how it's like and unlike other liminal spaces there, thank you for that word, Jim, actually helps us get a deeper understanding of that quite famous fantasy book.
0: I I've been thinking about the novel. I think you guys probably have read it, Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. That it's a story about a a man from our world or the world in London, anyways, who uh, finds himself in kind of the same world as his own, except nobody can see him anymore once he meets a girl named Dor. and <laughs> she she. She is part of an underclass, um, unemployed, homeless, crazy people, perhaps, um, who live in the streets of London or the sewers of London or the rooftops of London in all the places that are outside of the the regular places that regular people can go who live in, indoors. Um, but when he makes this decision to help her and ignore her, his girlfriend who says, don't help her. She's, you know, disgusting homeless person. Um, he, he's tainted himself with that world of hers. And he, she is, he is no longer visible just as the homeless are no longer visible to the people who walk by them every day. I think it's a, a pretty clever name and, he he does that with a few other characters in the book. You know, there's a character who's a hunter named Hunter. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, so um, I remember I isn't Dawes' father, um, Lord Portico, hmm. and uh, the main not to give away the, the full plot, but the it, the actual main sort of chase and motivation of the characters is Dor is being hunted because she can, has a name from her family and hers, so they, they have an affinity with Dawes.
2: Mm-hmm. And someone
3: is looking for a door to get back into heaven. That's right. Um, and so that's a, it's a very rich text in terms of thinking of portals and doors, because it does all hinge around these worlds within worlds of
1: uh, did you use that word passage hinge? between them. Hmm? Why did you use that word hinge? Jim? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm asking seriously. Well, no,
3: no, no. That's, that's, that's how deep the idea is going to our language, isn't it? Of, um there is that idea that ideas hinge upon something, that if you push that idea,
1: it opens you up into another space. <laughs> uh, that's right. In thinking about doors, I, as you can tell, I tried to think of, of close, things that are close to doors but not doors. And one of the things that came to my mind, it's in what you said as you set us up, Jesse Gates. I thought about styles. Um, you know, S-T-I-L-E-S, those uh, stairs that go up on a fence and then down the other side so that the the cattle or whatever are confined in a field can't get out, but a human being can. Um, you can just go from one field to the next. And one of the things that struck me about styles and why they are not, in fact, doors or even gates is that styles only allow passage from one part of a world to an part of the very same world, right? You can get from the, the field where the corn is to the field where the uh, pigs are, but the pigs can't get over and just depredate the corn. Um, but it's still all the farm from the human beings viewpoint. Um, and if we were, um, uh, Raymond Williams, and we were seeing the style allowing us to get into the field from the country lane, we would say, well, it's all the country, um, rather than the city. So styles aren't like, aren't like doors. Um, and the reason I mention that at this moment is I, I think you've really, uh, drawn something potent out of, uh, out of your view of it, Jim, styles don't have hinges. Right. They really don't ask mm. you to make that specific change of world. They just allow you to make to continue on your way, but stop other things from doing it. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, there's also a differentiating in um, thinking of styles in the countryside made me think of a lot of what we have European old churches of uh, lych gates and side doors to churches Yes, which you know came about because you know literally the dead came into the church for the funeral service by a different route to the living Hmm. Uh, yeah (laughs) um, and there's also um, the interesting idea of that different doors have different functions at different times there was a a widespread folk belief uh, in the UK and in parts of Europe and it's uh, commemorated in a Thomas Hardy short story called The Superstitious Man's Tale of the practice of what was called church porching, which said that if you went to um, your local church or chapel at midnight and held a vigil on a suitably propitious day, it varies from region to region, from uh, Halloween, uh, St. John's Day, Christmas Day, Valentine's Day, Midsummer's Day, uh, and you wait you will see the uh, ghosts of the, sp- or rather the doppelgangers of the people who are going to die that year in the parish troop into the church.
1: Uh, wow. And uh, yeah. <laughs> And do they enter through the lych gate or do you just see them in the road?
3: No, no, they, they come up through the lych gate and process uh-huh. up through the main church doors. Uh, there's several variations. One variation is that you see shades of, of everybody who lives in the village goes in and the ones who, when they come out of the church actually wander off, off the path into the graveyard and vanish into the grounds. They're the ones who are going to die (laughs) in the next 12 months.
1: The, uh, I don't, there is something, uh, maybe you, you know about this Jim and can, can clarify my fuzzy memory. Um, there's something about the, the four, 14 saints. Um, there was a holiday celebrated, and I gather it still is in Germany, um, where people make a mark on their door to keep the dead from returning on this holiday of the 14 saints. Um, and, of course, putting a mark on a door to keep someone from entering goes back a long way. Uh, we certainly can see it in the old Testament
2: mm-hmm. where
1: we have the blood of a sacrificial lamb keeping uh, death from the doors uh, from crossing the doorposts of the Hebrews who are going to be slain. The firstborn sons uh, We're going to be slain by the angel of death of everyone. The Egyptians, uh, that's the 10th plague in, in Exodus. Um, that idea of keeping death from the door really does suggest a marking of two different worlds, the living and the dead, just like those lich gates.
3: Uh, very much so. I mean, um, there's a lot of similar superstitions uh, like that on various days where the dead are supposed to return. Most usually it's our All Saints Day, uh, 1st of November, um, but that's kind of – it's one of those festivals that over the centuries has skipped around a bit in different <laughs> areas before it was kind of standardized and we get our modern Halloween from it. But one of the ideas of the original um, purpose of carving jack-o'-lanterns was you left them you know, at your, on your gatepost to scare off the returning dead and any other supernatural malevolence who were about on that night when the veil
1: was said to be thin between worlds. Mm. Um, How do you think... Gates function in this way. Um, there's a sort of uh, natural way. I, I use that word with fear fearfully, uh, since nature keeps getting reconstrued by us all the time. But um, I do find it difficult to just walk through a gate. I have to open it. Um, and I find it difficult to walk through a door. I have to open it. I think my bodily incapacity is natural. I don't think of myself as disabled. But... Um, spirits can seem to often pass through things or float above them and so on. So how do gates function in keeping out the spirits of the dead? What what do we think of gates um, as doors more for spirits than they are for people? Um, How, I mean... I grew up in an apartment building. I put my jack-o'-lantern in front of my door. I didn't have a gate post. So I'm asking you to, to tell me more. How you think about this? Well, I think there's this distinction used between a gate and a door. Of
3: a, a door leads usually to an interior of somewhere where a gate is actually at the boundary of the territory and doesn't necessarily lead inside. But it is that kind of statement of you come in through here. You don't just climb over the wall and And certainly, in kind of folkloric beliefs, there's that kind of idea of that the path is here, you follow the path, and everything natural or unnatural is actually bound by these laws of territoriality and If you erect a gate, um it isn't just a physical barrier; it's a notional one as well um Hence, in mythology, you have so many um stories of there's a keeper of the gate who you have to get past before you can get into the the castle of whatever. And normally then you've got another challenge of getting into the castle and bypassing the door. But the gate is often, um, it's the first line of sort of defense. It is the first barrier you must cross. And then there'll be other, other doors beyond that that you have to cross in various ways. And I think it's kind of, it's that kind of, The gates tend to be more, I think, kind of say they're at the edge of the territory rather than necessarily um, leading to a specific space. It's more leading into a general space.
1: I kind of I I hear you. I'm, I'm playing with two different ideas here. One is that by going through the gate, you whether you are willing to do it or not should recognize that you are in a domain under someone's control, and it may not be you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Mm. um, The second thing that I'm thinking of is that, in a way, the gate is the cover of a book, and the door is what we cross when we read Once Upon a Time or however the story starts, and gets us actually into the narrative. The, the cover says, if you open this, you're in somebody else's world. But when you actually are in somebody else's world, that's no longer telling you that. That becomes unconscious. You've got to function in that world. Both the gate and the hinges in this story have, are,
0: sorry, both the uh, the cover and the pages have hinges, right? Oh,
1: wow. Well, um, but- codices do. I think it's more of a portal, though,
0: um, to that world than a, than a door, you know, that first page. But maybe the text, yeah. I, I want to read a, from the first page of uh, uh, the second paragraph of the first page of a famous book and see what you guys think of this, because it came to mind while you were talking. It had a perfectly round door, like a porthole, painted green, with a shiny yellow brass knob in the exact middle. The door opened to a tube-shaped hall like a tunnel, a very comfortable tunnel, without smoke, without panels, uh, with paneled walls and floors and tiles and and carpets, provided with polished chairs and lots and lots of pegs for hats and coats. The Hobbit was fond of visitors. The tunnel wound on and on, going fairly but not quite straight into the side of the hill. The hill, as as all the people for many miles around called it, and many little round doors opened out of it, first on one side and then on the other. So you go through the, you come up to the gate, you go through the gate, you go up to the big round green door with a handle in the exact center, open it, go inside, find yourself in the tunnel, and then see more round doors. Why round? Uh, this the why? Why is the handle in the exact center of the door? I think... Tolkien doesn't know how doors work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the image, but why round? Why green?
1: Well, green uh, certainly suggests that hobbits are natural creatures. Um, I can think of <clears throat> something that's green with uh, a, a something black right in the middle of it. Um, my eyes. And this maybe brings us back to the the impar- the imperfect but nonetheless substantial overlap between windows and doors. Mm-hmm. And iris is after all round.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is in the exact center. And the pupil is in the exact center of the iris. Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, it, the it strikes me also that when I was doing research for the that show we did on. Uh, the Door in the Wall by H.G. Wells, Mr. Jim Moon, that uh, green doors are most the most common form of magic doors, doors to other worlds. I don't remember the Secret Garden's color door, um, but I'm betting it was green, because it, once you start looking, um, there's, a, there's a door in a uh, uh, very early time travel story um, that... A girl goes through and finds herself in her ancestors' home, town, and home uh, and time period. And that door is green. It's called the magic door. Mm. Mm. But it, this, the, the fact that <coughs> Mr. Bilbo Baggins' door is green um, probably has some significance. Uh, but, yeah, that center, <laughs> the fact that it's round like a porthole... It makes makes us think of a window. And it is our entrance into the world, especially in this early opening uh, chapter. Tolkien is trying to ease us into the world, isn't he? When he starts telling the story, he starts telling us, you know, now you don't see hobbits around much these days. (laughs) But if you were to see one, they'd be, you know, quiet and such. I think, you know, the fact that he has to start off with a negative, it was a hole in the ground. In the hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole, right, filled with the ends of worms or an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. It, <laughs> it gets us out of the idea, ew, I'm living in a hole in the ground, I don't want to spend <laughs> any time in this world, why should I pass through that door, even if it is nice and green?
1: Well, of course, he did create this for his children. Um, And I can tell you, having had two, um, it's true. Boys can't go past puddles without jumping in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, one of the reasons that people say in stories for children oh it's not horrible and messy and smelly is so that they get to allow the reader to conjure up the idea of horrible and messy and smelly mm-hmm. uh, think of the uh the popularity of uh fundamental jokes in uh i mean that uh, intentionally in mm-hmm. the shrek series the series of shrek movies the kids love farts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's true
0: and he's green too.
1: Indeed, he is. <laughs> what is there's a there's a movie, a comparatively recent movie with Bill Nighy, um, I, and Domhnall gleason I can't remember the name of it. Um, where at coming of age, every male in the family learns that he has the ability to travel through time. Oh,
0: right, I I remember that. That was quite good. Um. I don't remember the name of the movie, but
1: nor I, but it was a terrific movie. I mean to opine here that um, in fact, every time the uh, youngster travels through time, he has to go through a door first. He's got to separate himself from the observing world. In order to perform the uh, activity, which is clenching your hands yeah. and uh, and thinking really hard. <laughs> um, he's got to go through a door first to gain privacy so that he can. Then About walk time It's the name of the movie. It's what? About time. Excellent. Thank you. In order to then walk out that same door and be in the time that he has in mind. So um, at the end, and I'm sorry, this is a spoiler for those who haven't seen it. Well, it doesn't matter um, what he needs to do ultimately is to decide not whether or not, well, ostensibly he is deciding whether or not to continue to use this power to travel through time. But visually and phenomenologically, what he needs to do is decide whether or not for the sake of maintaining a family, for having a social world, Mm. he will cease to go through the door. Um, And, you know, when you see the movie, I mean, anyone who sees the movie will see again and again, Domino Gleeson going in and out of doors uh, Mm. until he either does or doesn't. (laughs) And and uh, as the
0: watcher of the movie, you you go with him, you see him go into that room from one world into that small confined space or wherever it is. And then when he goes out again, that world is changed. Yes, it is. a. It's a, it's almost like the door is magic, because if it weren't for the
1: dialogue, we would think there's something strange going on. Yeah. Yeah. So doors really are are kind of amazing. They really are.
0: And he, when he I believe his sister doesn't have the, the time travel power, he, he takes her with him, um, <laughs> which is pretty amazing by taking her
1: into that little confined space. Right. Right. Uh, do we think of the phantom toll booth as being a door?
0: I mean, not I. I. I haven't read it, so I don't know. Ah, uh,
1: well.
3: Hmm.
1: I suppose that's what. Well, it it is artificial. More of a gateway, yes. <laughs> right. Um. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's more of a gate. It's a gate rather than a door. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I was, as as luck would have it, just complete fortune, it just happened that it was a beautiful autumn day here uh, in the metro New York area yesterday. And my wife and I went over to the, uh, the Chinese Scholars Garden at the Snug Harbor Cultural Center on Staten Island to have a walk around. And those of you who've been to... Uh, to Chinese gardens will know that they often have, as this one does, um, what are called moon gates. I don't think they're any relation to you, Jim, but um, (laughs) I don't know the etymology of your name, but but moon gates are completely round and they're called gates, uh, but they have no nothing in them you don't have to open and close them you only walk through them i thought that's what they're for i've encountered them in other chinese gardens i thought at first that's what they're for but in fact they are they have two functions the obvious one is to make a distinction between two domains within an extensive garden. I mean, when I say garden, I mean, as you can see, the other the others that I've been in have been in Seattle and in Sydney, Australia. Um, th- these are large. I mean, these gardens are many acres. Um, and they're different domains, rockier or with fish ponds or whatever. Um so they separate the domains, but but with no visual separation. The second thing they do is subtler. And I realized it as I was following the paths and then looking back. As you move away from the moon gate at any given angle, you get a different vantage into the domain that you're not in. That is, because the moon gate exists in a wall... It frames that other environment that you're not in, and the other environment looks different depending upon where you stand in relation to the Moon Gate. Think of yourself as on a semicircle, you know, uh with a radius of whatever, thirty feet. So uh it seems to me that one of the things that we might see Gates as doing is offering us viewpoints and uh Maybe that's one of the reasons that we post signs on gates. Um, If you're going to enter here, you're going to have to change certain assumptions, right? Abandon all hope ye who enter here. Let no one enter here who knows not geometry. Beware of the dog. (laughs) Um, Gates offer us viewpoints. Um, If we look at them different ways, we get a different viewpoint. Whereas doors don't. Doors are solid. You can't change your viewpoint with a door. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. You can change your world, but <laughs> right? But then you have to discover what that new world is. You don't get to to glimpse it either from the right or the left. Uh, and I think that uh, that's sort of the same thing with a lot of science fictional portals. Um, if they make you line up on the axis, then they don't have that property. But if they allow you to wander from the axis, to get different glimpses of what might be on the other side of the portal. Then, of course, we have that wonderful plot device of thinking that it's this kind of a world, but when you get there, ho, ho, ho. Now that you have the full view, it's quite a different world.
0: <laughs> I got a, a, a Poe poem here that I thought of when you guys were talking, and um, it's it's uh, transforms... Body parts into uh gates and doors and windows um bottom half it's the the bottom half of uh, the haunted palace, and it goes like this, and all with pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door through which came flowing, 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 and ever sparkling evermore a troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing in the voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king, and then uh the the corruption comes. And travellers now within that valley, through the red litten windows, see vast forms that move fantastically to the discordant melody, while like a ghastly rapid river through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh, but smile no more. That the mouth becomes a a path outward for breath and and inward for breath and outward for song and for wisdom and then later becomes the uh, input for flies and maggots and the and, uh, disgusting sense of corruption mm. The, the um, one of the reasons sometimes a student will ask me why I don't have pierced ears or something like that and I say, I, I, I prefer to have just a n- natural number of orifices in my body. <laughs> um, an orifice as opposed to a, a door or a gate or a window. Um, it's, 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 it's not on our list, but it is something to think about.
1: I think that uh, if we stuck with the notion of hinged, if we stuck with the o- notion of open and closable, If we stuck with the notion of inside versus outside, so uh, um, the most natural vehicle for metaphors that carry the the tenor of doors would be the human mouth. Mm -hmm. But in fact, as you've just shown, it doesn't work at all. It's quite jarring to use body parts that way. And I think that's because doors, in fact, are artificial.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Indeed. But uh, but I, I'm not sure that that's the case with windows. The eyes of the windows of the soul seems to be uh, well, well accepted. Um, and a window almost can seem to happen without nature being involved. If we think of... Uh, going back to that earlier image of narcissus looking into the pool yes um, uh, a calm water body of water is a is a window into another world it's not um, the same as a window in the wall of your home but it's not that different it is vertical as opposed to horizontal I suppose but there's I think there's also some connection um, to The night sky, especially day sky, perhaps as well, but especially the night sky as a uh, window to the universe uh, and a place that no doorway can get us to that there's no ladder we can climb. And so for for the longest time, it was a kind of wonderful window in that we couldn't go anywhere close to it. And when we could, it wasn't via gate or via door or any kind of portal. It was via rocket
1: <clears throat> into the heavens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like that very much. You can the, the eyes are the window of the soul. The soul floats up to heaven. The eyes can see to heaven. They can see the moon and the stars, mm-hmm. but we can't get there. Um, If you look at the etymology, going all the way back to uh, Indo-European, door actually comes from a word that means door. (laughs) Door is as far back as we can trace it. Door is door. It's something made by human beings. But window actually means a combination of wind, which is a natural phenomenon, and eye. Wind eye. Ah, Wind eye. mm. Exactly. So... Any opening whatsoever that allows the wind to go through. And, of course, the spirit, the soul, the spirit, it comes from Greek spiros, it's breath, right? We inspire, we get inspiration, but inspiration is also the first half of respiration. We inspire, Mm. we expire. Expire is death. Inspire is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But in physiological terms, inspiration and expiration are respiration, respiration. To have breath again and again and again, respire. Mm-hmm. So, um, this w- windows have to do with with air. They have to do with breath. They have to do with eyes. So etymologically, absolutely, these are not artificial. We use that term from us and put it onto the thing in our environment, mm-hmm. as opposed to the reverse. Um, There's always that that time when one can consider uh, a metaphor, having the vehicle and tenor switch their roles. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, before Harvey discovers the circulation of the blood, um, nobody ever says the pump, the heart is like a pump. Um, Right. We talk about pulses, plural, because you've got them in your wrists and on your neck and in in your ankles. Once you've got the distinction, the idea of how the heart works, then you can either say, a pump is like the heart or the heart is like a pump. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the oldest meaning of window is the, is the biological one, not the architectural one. Whereas the oldest meaning of door is the architectural one. What, what about, um, what, why,
0: why does Stargate have a, a Stargate? And what, when I believe in Babylon Five when they when they go into hyperspace they go through a hyperspace gate. Um, it's not a hyperspace door. I, there's no hinge. Right, you go up to it. It lets you in or it doesn't let you in. Is is that is that the only? Re, is it gates have to be artificial in the same way that doors do, but they don't require is there something about a door being why isn't it a door is is my question as opposed to a gate?
3: Well, I think in modern pop culture, you have, um, the, the gates, I think go back to Lovecraft, but for Babylon five and, um, Stargate, they take the term Stargate explicitly from Kubrick's 2001. Mm. And that's actually a portal opened up by the black monolith, which, um, They played with with a lot of different ideas and they settled on this square black shape partly. And one of the reasons was because it looked like this black open doorway. Mm -hmm. The the fake Twilight
0: Zone show inside of Futurama is called the scary door.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There was once a, uh, I forget sometime in the late forties, early fifties, I, Could look it up if you like. Um, There was a story contest in a science fiction magazine. Frederick Brown Mm -hmm. supplied a story stub, and then everyone was supposed to write in the continuation of the story. Um, His story began, there had been an atomic war. Um, Everyone was dead. The last man on earth sat alone in his room. There was a knock on the door. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you can, you know, was it the last woman? Was it the first robot? Was it the alien? Was it a now smart mutated rabbit? Was it a tree limb that's caught in a a ruptured uh, electric wire that the wind is knocking? I mean, who knows? But the last word in that story stem to get the imagination running is, and there was a knock on the door. Mm -hmm. So... Make it a scary door. Why not?
3: <laughs> mm. Well, uh, SF writer William F. Nolan, um, had something he called the door problem, which was, you know, you can set up a situation where a character's in a room and there's a knock at the door. And the problem for the writer is, is what do you reveal on the other side? Because Nolan said, it's kind of, if you open the door and there's a seven foot bug, the, um, audience immediately goes, oh, thank goodness. I thought it might be a 70-foot-tall book outside there. <laughs> you're always on a losing wicket of what when you open the door because if you build it, you're doing your job right as a writer, you've got the imagination fired up, and the audience's imagination will always trump what you eventually reveal.
1: <laughs> That's why I think um, film directors frequently take a long time to let us see the monster, they'd much rather have us see the door open, creak, 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 um, <laughs> and not the hand that's opening the door.
3: Well, to that point, the, the the classic use of the the door in a frightening fiction is Shirley Jackson's *Haunting of Hill House*, uh, which and Robert Wise adapted it as a very fine movie, *The Haunting*. But one of the really most terrifying scenes in the book and the film is where two of the characters are in a room at night and the, there's noises outside the door and then there's something banging on the door and the door actually starts bulging but the door is never opened you never see what's causing these horrendous noises and putting such pressure on the door that this you know, ancient oakwood door starts to bulge like rubber Right and, uh, and notice it's one of the few times you can get away with not revealing it, and everyone's happier. Because, as Nolan said, the problem is sooner or later you do have to open the door. Normally, <laughs> banging versus knocking,
0: right? Mm. It, the scary banging is it could be unnatural, or could, uh, sorry, could be um, like a bear, right? Mm. Whereas knocking, if 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 there's a bear knocking on the door, that that is a science fiction story, right?
3: Whereas the bear is banging on the door, that's not. I think the other example of an, un- good o- of an unopened door that's really effective is the end of the monkey's paw. Oh, oh, oh yes, it's true. We know what's behind the
0: door, or at least we use our imagination to that mm. effect. But we never see it, and mm-hmm. the door is never opened. It's mm. very, very good call.
1: Yeah, I most fundamental, well, uh, Gaston Bachelot, a a very powerful phenomenologist, wrote a book called uh, The Psychoanalysis of Fire, another one called The Poetics of Space, um, in which he talks, for example, about the differences between basements and attics. Uh, He talks about uh, the differences between nests and layers. Um, uh, He talks about the ways in which Certain fundamental phenomena always have implicit in them um, di- dichotomies. So um, fire, for example, uh, fine servant, horrible master, right? Um, mm-hmm. right? Uh, water, we drown in it, we die without it. Um these fundamental phenomena usually have, um, Vashilat points out, both what one might think of as a positive meaning and as a negative meaning, but they don't have to be called positive and negative, just so much as we can understand that there are contexts within which the multiplicity of meanings, the plural signification, can think of as entailing opposition. So, for instance, we can talk about, (coughs) we ordinary mortals can talk about those poor little rich boys, you know, those poor kids who have to be taken by a chauffeured limousine from their apartments on the Upper East Side of Manhattan to their private schools with their chauffeurs who are double as bodyguards because they live in constant fear of being kidnapped because their parents are so wealthy. So they are imprisoned by this luxury, whereas we ordinary mortals can think, wow, we're going to go to our high school prom, let's rent a limousine and really have a terrific time. So the same thing can have two opposing valences. And I think one of the key things about a door is that we can see it one way or another and an opposing other, the same gate that makes for a safe suburban community can be the gate that makes for a cultural imprisonment and a homogeneity that is soul-sucking. Then you just have to look at it one way or the other. Arbeit macht frei, right? And over the gate. <laughs> indeed, although that, of course, was actually a flat-out lie. Indeed. That is the ultimate irony, right? Are you, oh. I, I, you know, I. You. you... <laughs> Did you mean that joke? <laughs> it literally is. Well, it, <laughs> I mean, if you if you visited those places, you know that those gates, let's say Arbeit Macht Frei, um, are actually made out of iron. So when you say it's the ultimate irony, there is there is a, a very sick pun involved, Jesse. <laughs> There's a number of sick puns in there. Indeed. But uh, it
0: it is it's interesting too that it's it, it's. Uh, perhaps it it had a uh, it was an open gate right uh, uh it, 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 i don't know if it was then but when we when a visitor is passing through it, it's an open gate
1: right when the, it's open today. when when they're sitting there when, when someone is sitting and saying okay you guys go to the left you guys go to the right that's right it is open and uh, of course it's a crucial lie but it's it's important that it be on the doorway um, and it is. I mean, you can call it a gate, but it's shaped like a door. That is, it has a top as well. Mm-hmm. It has mm-hmm. a lintel. It's not just uh, two sides. It has, uh, you know, all. It's rectangular, and you walk, pass through it. Um, as those, as those victims, almost inevitably victims, um, mm-hmm. were passing through, that sign was a promise that if you did the right thing, if you worked, right, arbeit, if you worked. You could go back through that door. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I think the sign, that's why I think the phrase Arbeit macht frei is on the doorways leading into the concentration camps rather than being placed anywhere else. It's not, it's, it's, I mean, I've been to Dachau a couple of times and uh, it's nowhere else. It's only on the gates. It's only above the doorways into the, into the concentration camp. It's they're they're not trying to encourage people to work harder. It's not like, you know, a sign in a factory uh, on a factory wall on the inside that says 36 days without an accident in order to encourage the workers to be more careful. Um, Once you're in, you're in. Mm -hmm. But but the lie to get them in is to say this isn't a permanent gate. You could come back out this door. Yeah. I think maybe the reason that I'm finding myself conflating the words gate and door when it comes to uh, concentration camps is that the notion that, that you, Jim, have suggested that a gate sort of says, okay, here's somebody's territory, whereas the door says you're really into the other world. When we get to a concentration camp, somebody's territory is so absolutely defined that it is somebody else's world. So that even though it may look, the sun may shine equally well on either side of the gate, but once you've crossed it, it's as if you've gone through a door. I think that absolute irrevocable change that we see with those concentration camps may make for the elision of those two words in this instance. The phenomena Interpenetrate.
0: Shall we talk about Rubicons? I don't know if I'm willing to cross that one. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody is. Um, uh, I looked it up there. I I had thought that they had lost it and they did lose it, but they found it again the Rubicon, (laughs) the actual river, Mm -hmm. Um, a very shallow river uh, that maybe doesn't even go all the way to the sea anymore. But the historical meaning of Rubicon has entered the lang- language of English in a way that I think um, is useful. Um, uh, a Rubicon is a river you can't you can't cross again. That's not exactly what the original meaning was, but I think that it's it, it makes it made me think of the story of The Cold Equations, which is after a certain point in uh, the flight of a spaceship. Uh, with X amount of fuel, um, it will be unable to return. You know, in in a certain uh, path. Um, the story of the cold equations is about a spaceship w- delivering emergency supplies, and uh, there's a stowaway on board. And because of the pro- uh, very poor engineering, they didn't put enough uh, fuel for. Uh, a little bit more mass than they were expecting, and so the girl has to be ejected from the spa- the stowaway. Girl has to be ejected from the spaceship in order to deliver the supplies and save everybody. It is the is the point of the story, I guess. Um, but it, a Rubicon in that case is a hypothetical mathematical Rubicon, but isn't sort of Time travel, the fact that we only go in one direction—a kind of Rubicon. Our decisions in life, as we go, can't be undone. Is that what Rubicons are for in our world? Hmm. I. Uh, I, I. It's a it's a hard problem because
1: we use the term, but. Well, when when Julius Caesar. Presumably decides to cross the Rubicon and bring an armed legion into from Gaul into into the Imperium of Rome. He knows that he's breaking the law and that it, it's there's no way out of having a fight. So once he's done this, he's either got to win the battle or die. Um, and at least historically, we're told that he says at that point, est," the die is cast. Mm -hmm. um he makes a choice um i the only way i can not get older um is also a choice (laughs) but it's you know it's it's suicide Mm -hmm. um that's a rubicon you can't uncross that's true and so in that sense um I guess you could say getting older, but it's the suicide that's the Rubicon because I can choose to, every day I can say to myself, I will or I won't commit suicide as Jean-Paul Sartre uh, discusses in La Nausée. Um, But I don't, as long as I've decided not to commit suicide, I will move forward through time. At least I believe that. Mm -hmm. Whereas time machines, which seem to have been invented by H.G. Wells, time, I mean, as, as rhetorical uh, ideas, not that I think he actually had one, time machines allow us to pass back and forth. Um, that's different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Rip Van Winkle wakes up 20 years later, he can't say, oh, I don't like this neighborhood, I'm going back. I'll go back to sleep, it doesn't work. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I think. I think Rubicon's share with doors the notion that they define they are they define a boundary between two different social contexts i mean that's what happens when julius caesar decides who wasn't caesar at the time when julius decides to uh to break the law and you know the die is cast um but they are natural it is an a an imposition on those natural features that makes them function as liminal. Um, the, the, the As I walk from... Uh, anybody who's ever driven in Los Angeles County I think has encountered this bizarre sense that you don't know why things are called what they are. Um, right? I mean, when you go from... And you know, it says welcome, you know, entering Beverly Hills. It doesn't look like you've changed anything, right? It looks exactly the same. It's just this street we're going to call the edge of Beverly Hills. Um, the Ohio River makes a boundary, right? There are shires in uh, cou- there are counties in England that are defined by by rivers, so we just say okay, we don't have to build this wall. We've already got a demarcation. Let's call it that. Um, So Rubicons, I think, are like doors in that they mark different worlds, but they are like gates, worlds of, you know, whose territory is this? Is it a place to control? So I think Rubicons are a little like gates. They're a little like doors. Um, They are, though, unlike either in that they they just are there. You can decide to use them or not. I mean, society can decide to use them or not.
0: But uh, I think, isn't there the, the implication that it's a one way? So if, if we think of the mouth as a door into the body, um, you eat something, it goes down. Generally, it stays down. Sometimes it comes back up. <laughs> um, uh, it often comes back
1: up. Well, if you get sick. Well, or if you spit it out, or right, there you or go, or if right. somebody makes you laugh while your mouth is full. Um. <laughs>
0: well, you know, for me, it doesn't come out, back out that often, is what I'm saying. Um, at least not that end. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the um, the Rubicon once crossed, the die is cast. So yes. if, if one of my favorite uh, novels by Larry Niven is called Protector. Um, in it, there's a, a root that, uh, if you eat it, and when you smell it, you will be compelled to eat it, um, turns you into a protector. Once you become a protector, you can't, you know, eat another root, like Alice, you know, and shrink up and down in size variously, right? right. Um, it's it's a one-way um, door, in a certain mm-hmm. sense. It Once passed, um, it's un...
1: Returnable through. So, from a narrative viewpoint, it's important to uh, for for a, someone creating the story to decide whether they want to use a Rubicon as in its original sense a matter of choice, or if they want to use a Rubicon um, as something unwitting, like the the King in Yellow. You, you you read this play and now, now you're stuck, right? You, <laughs> you you your your mind is forever captured by having read this, uh, or uh, what is it called, the ring that said, a,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yes, yeah. Mm. Um, so uh, I don't know that we should call those Rubicons if they don't involve choice, but they certainly do have that in common with Rubicons that once crossed, there's no going back. Mm.
0: Well, think of the River Styx, right? So once you cross the Rubicon of deciding to kill yourself, um, you're going to have to cross the River Styx. Um, But whether you decide to kill yourself or you just die, you still have to cross the River Styx. But it's a one-way... Street, I is don't the idea. think
1: it is actually, at least not in ancient Greek mythology, right? Um, yeah, was, yeah, but more the river Styx. Well, there a few heroes that go back and forth, and well, there
3: are they the to Hades and kick off for a bit, so and right.
1: then there's Persephone, you know, who comes, mm. you know, only only spends, you know, half of the year there, and otherwise she's in Boca, um, mm. <laughs> you know. I mean, <laughs> that I, I think that's part of the part of what you've got to do when you believe in. Um, A spiritual aspect of life different from the accident of the way our machines, our biological machines work. You've got to think of it as somehow being able to transform, whether it's transmigration of souls or going through karmic cycles or going to a limbo or having an afterlife. I mean, one of the the key Western uh, examples of this is Jesus, who... um, Presumably is embodied, you know, he is God the Father embodied, made incarnate. This is my body, eat of it. This is my blood, drink of it. Um, And then he dies. He dies on the cross. Um, And his body is taken and put into a cave. And a, a stone is put in front of it, a door. And three days later, the door gets opened. And there's, you know, a great locked room mystery. How did he get out since he couldn't? It took many, many people to move that that door. Um, And of course, he got out by being spirit, although. Thomas, the disciple, doesn't really accept that, and he has to put his fingers into Jesus's wound to be convinced that it's really Jesus. Hence, we get doubting Thomas. You know, he just doesn't believe someone could have passed through that door. Um, That's not that's i think that's not a rubicon i think that that there is a lot conspiring in human myth i mean that we see reflected in human myth to believe that death is not permanent
0: i think i think that is exactly sort of the issue and and it's why i keep thinking of this story uh the cold equations because in i i think it's a terribly written story it's not well written but i think it's very very important because it Uh, To me, it is a demarcation between sort of non the real science fiction, the kind that says the world is material, that um, math, unfortunately, is is more real than poetry, and so when you read the story, many people reject it, not just on the basis that it's badly written, but for Various reasons, like, well, they shouldn't have done it that way, or that's a very bad engineering, or oh, they're basically rejecting the premise of the story. And I think that that's not really coming to grips with how important a Rubicon it is. So I, I've got the Wikipedia entries plot for it, and I think it's important because I, in imagining what it looks like, there the Rubicon can be crossed, wittingly, unwittingly, but it can't be recrossed in the same way that Caesar can't recross the Rubicon and say, oh, it was a mistake. (laughs) Um, It it, it says, the story takes place entirely on aboard an emergency dispatch, dispatch ship headed for the frontier planet of Woden with a load of desperately needed medical supplies supplies the pilot Barton discovers a stowaway an 18 year old girl by law all EDS stowaways are to be jettisoned because EDS vessels carry no more fuel than is absolutely necessary to land safely at their destination the girl Marilyn merely wants to see her brother Jerry and was not aware of the law when boarding the EDS Marilyn saw a sign saying unauthorized personnel keep out but thought she would at most have to pay a fine if she were caught Barton explains that her presence dooms the mission by exceeding the weight limit and the subsequent crash would kill both them and doom the colonists awaiting their medical supplies. After contacting her brother for the last moments of her life, Marilyn willingly walks into the airlock and is ejected into space. She, she consciously makes a decision that would have had to have been made whether she consciously does it or not. At that point in the story, somebody has to kick her out of the airlock. If it's not her, it's got to be Barton. And once she made the decision to ignore the sign, unauthorized personnel keep out, whether she understood what that meant or not, she had crossed a Rubicon, which would have prevented her life from being saved. Isn't Isn't that different from... You know, the the metaphorical, you know, cr- crossing of uh, the s- River Styx, that <laughs> it's, it, it, I think that it's so, so, what's so cool about the River Styx story is that it it invites all of this idea that the ferryman, maybe you can trick him to get him, get back across, but with a story like The Cold Equations, where we are dealing with ostensibly hard science fiction, where she can't be suddenly saved by an alien spaceship passing nearby that just happens to be able to pick up her spirit. Or as in soft science fiction like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when the Earth is destroyed, there just has, happens to be a passing uh, spaceship with a uh, ability to hitchhike them off, right? All right. <laughs> there's, there's something here, I think, in a Rubicon as a one-way only place – that isn't in a gate or uh, the Arbeit Macht frei was a lie, but some people did pass through that gate on the way out, even though that was the opposite of the promise. But that was not because of the promise. It was because of being rescued.
3: I, I, I think of a few examples in the literature. I mean, one, um, one of the, the famous one of the most famous one-way doors of all time is in the Pied Piper of Hamlin, when the townspeople break the <laughs> break their pact with the piper. He leads the children off, and a doorway opens the hill, and it shuts, and they never come out again. Nice. Um, there's um, there's lots of other things in myth and folk tales about uh, wishes or conditions are granted when you pass through a certain number of doors. Um, there's um. I have recently looking up uh, an American modern bit of folklore based in Pennsylvania that says in a certain um, rural area, there are actually seven gates along a forest path. And if you pass through all seven gates, you end up in hell, <laughs> never to return. <laughs> That's kind of modern modern day kind of folklore. And uh, the local residents got rather annoyed with people coming looking for them.
1: <laughs> um Trying to get into hell. <laughs> there, there is actually a hill in Michigan, um, and a, a small mm, town. Yes, but yes it, it, and there's a it, heaven nearby, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm not aware of that, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll have to seek to see if that's true. But I lived in Michigan for many years, and I know that hell um, is there. Uh, that is the town uh, in which a major um, part of the income comes from remailing postcards people want the hell postmark mm. so they send things to the post office there and it makes money by re- you know restamping them you just you send them a letter they Open it up and inside there's a letter for them to mail back to you with a hell postmark. It's a it's a nice little business. Uh, there's an annual um, motorcycle rally in hell. Naturally enough, it's to hell and back. So at least in that case, you know, we can return from hell as in the title of Audie Murphy's uh, autobiography or supposed autobiography about World War Two. Um I think I'll say this once and then I'll just stop because um, I I think uh, sometimes I want to use a word one way and someone else wants to use it another way. And, um, you know, the caterpillar tells us that uh, you can make words do what you want them to do. Uh, (laughs) I think of Rubicon indeed as meaning an irrevocable choice, but I think of Rubicon as meaning a knowing irrevocable choice about which the outcome is uncertain. Um, And in that sense, Mm. I wouldn't see the cold equations as a Rubicon and I wouldn't see the river sticks as uh, a Rubicon because except for Persephone and so on, the outcome is certain. And, uh, and we don't know what's in that other realm. Um, So, but, but that's, I, I, have a, I have a narrower view of the word Rubicon than you do, apparently. Mm-hmm. But I would like to go back to portals, mm-hmm. um, since it was from them that that we moved to Rubicons. Um, if I recall the Subtle Knife correctly, the 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 book in uh, Pullman's uh, his Dark Materials trilogy. The point about the sub—I don't mean that pun. <laughs> the, uh, the the narrative use of the subtle knife is that the character who possesses it can open, can just slice through the air and create a portal into another domain. And as I recall, and I read the books many, many years ago, um, well, not that many, but uh, many from the standpoint of 20-year-olds, um the, the the male character, uh, I remember Lyra is the name of the female uh, protagonist, but there's a male protagonist as well. Any, either of you gentlemen remember his name? I haven't read it. Ah. I have read it. And I can't remember his name. Yeah. But my recollection then, uh, maybe it's wrong, Jim, um, is that every time he uses the knife to cut a doorway, a, a portal into another realm... Um, He's just hoping that it's going to get him to the place he wants it to get. And he always makes it small so that he, as a child, a 12-year-old, can crawl through it. Um, he could have made it bigger, but he never does. But this is, this is a genuine portal, I think. It is artificial, um, but it's, it's not obvious that it's going to work in two directions. To get back out, you may have to make a different portal from that other realm, and who knows exactly where it'll take you when you come back into our realm, and so on—is that recollection right?
3: Yes, yeah, and the, the, there is, like all good mythological artifacts, is a price for continue The more you use the knife, the more dangerous it becomes. Ah, uh, the boy's name's Will, by the way, which I <laughs> suspect is
1: significant, as in Volonté. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, so I, I guess the ability to create a portal um, given to someone on the cusp of puberty uh, is probably pretty powerful mythically. Uh, it's not the same as being in a world that has pre-existing doors, gates, and portals, or even naturally existing markers like rivers called the Rubicon that people can impose a meaning on saying you can make the portal where you want that's that's really a promise made to a child and uh, it's dangerous to go and make your world Uh, I like that
3: well I don't know if you have it um, over the pond but in Britain it's something died off these days but traditionally um, when someone turned 21 it was said they'd got the key to the door hmm. and in British culture it was kind of 21 was the age where your parents gave you a front door key of your own to come and go as you as you pleased I um, wow. <laughs> uh, say so it's I remember from my childhood but with um, people seeing sort of adults you know younger and younger, it has sort of died off, but certainly when I was growing up, I remember like my auntie turning 21 and getting a plethora of like greeting cards which nearly all had sort of keys on them and mm. there was' an old song about turning twenty one right you mm. who's got the key of the door never been twenty one before it was one of the lines in it huh. um, I think it, it's still as well uh you we do have a thing as well of a, a town or a city can. Uh, bestow, you know, an honor on a favored citizen by giving them the keys to the city symbolically. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Is it to the gate? Is it traditionally like there is a gate door and you can just go up to it with your giant key that they gave you? <laughs> it, it's a symbol of trust, right? In the same way that the 21 year old is supposed to get their key. Well,
3: uh I mean, many old sort of towns and uh, cities, in England and Europe have various um, places that I mean in my town we have a, a priest gate for example Skinner's Gate uh, Blackwell Gate and these aren't actually named after physical gates into the town that existed in medieval times It actually comes from the Saxon word garter which meant street hmm and so the gates were actually the roads into the town
1: the uh, the I don't know um, how the keys worked, but I have a theory, having bounced around in Europe a, a little bit. Um, if you think of the, the the barbicans that we can still see, for instance, in York, mm-hmm. uh, those are nominally open during the day. I mean, they are openings into a huge wall. and um, uh, They are for defensive purposes, since there's a a uh, portcullis that can come down both fore and aft and trap somebody in between in the Barbican. Um, now you can't get into the city, um, unless somebody opens up that portcullis so that that is in some sense, um, not a door you can have a key to, but in lots of places that I've seen, for instance, in, uh, the Mediterranean world, I mean, the North Mediterranean, France, Italy, Spain, um, Homes will be built with walls all around the home, and there will be, these days, a large set of doors, double doors, um, which in older days would have still been there, so that a carriage could drive in, uh, horses could could ride in. Um, And then set in one of these small doors, one of these large doors, will be a small human-sized door, and that door will have its own separate key. And I am opining, I am hypothesizing that the key to the city is one that opens a small door that can be used for individuals passing in and out of a city, even at night when its main doors, its gates, its barbicans are sealed against any outsiders. So that having the key to the city gives you free passage in and out and allows you to be protected by the laws of the city, which is something that did not happen um, to strangers until Venice began to do that in the 13th century.
0: There's also um, associated with, you know, having the key to the city is the, fr- the honor of the freedom of the city. Where Yes,
1: yes, very much so, yeah. Well, that's it's, what I mean. You can come in and out mm-hmm. as you will. Mm-hmm. But,
0: but, but it's not just... Uh, One of the things is military units get them, and so they they can – this is the opposite of what uh, Caesar had, right? Is that he doesn't have the freedom of the city to parade into the the city of Rome with his weapons and soldiers parading their weapons (laughs) through the city, through the gates of the city. Um, But if a city does honor uh, a military unit in some such fashion – what they are saying is, yeah, you can. We trust you. You can come in with your bayonets on and your weapons brandished, and we won't be have a problem with that because we do trust you.
1: Um, Janus is the uh, the, uh, the the Roman god from whom we get the name of the month January. Um, it's a changeable month. Uh, We think of Janus in the phrase Janus faced Images of Janus always show uh, a two-faced individual. I don't mean a liar, but a face in each direction. Um, Janus is known to the Romans as the god of doors. Mm. And uh, according to what I read, the only time that the temple of Janus is closed is at times of peace. So there is there is no problem with doors when you're at a time of peace, right? Because you just leave them open. It's when you're at war that you have to worry about sealing things off and hence needing keys, which you could then give to some military individual and give him the right to get through the doors.
0: You can also open the city, right? As in this is an open city.
1: Exactly. But, of course, the city, I mean, what the Romans were doing is letting the city be open when it was at peace.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So one doesn't need the key. You only need the key when there's a time of war. Yeah. When,
0: when the Nazis are fleeing Belgium uh, and Brussels is, is uh, full of Nazis, they want to get the Nazis out, they, they have the gates open. <laughs> And when the allies are pouring in, they have the
1: gates open because they, they want to be liberated. Exactly. Uh, growing up in New York, um, I remember uh, learning from people I met from other places, particularly when I went to graduate school in the Midwest, um, that, that they other people in other places didn't lock their doors. And those people I met, you know, were surprised uh, that I wasn't really a mean, cynical person, even though I always locked my doors. (laughs) Um, And I think what's going on is uh, if you grow up in New York, although you may not want to admit it, in some sense, you're never fully at peace because there are just so many people around you so densely with so many different ideas that – you just really want to be able to have your protected space or you could think of yourself as being imprisoned by the city. Um, whereas if you're living in Strawberry Point, Iowa, um, who the heck is going to come by and steal your tractor?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> if you're in the middle of uh, you know nowhere, you can have your Wi-Fi open. And if you're in the city, <laughs> you have to have what,
1: your Wi-Fi <laughs> passcoded, right? Um, what is it they call driving down the street and looking for an open Wi-Fi signal? We're driving. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And science fiction is very much about this. Um, those signals that come in from outside, do we trust ourselves to respond? Um Are those messages um, ideological um, doors or are they Rubicons?
0: (laughs) I think we got a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to press stop on this unless we got anything else.
1: If, If you don't press stop, then, uh, (laughs) you know what we haven't talked about and I'm not asking you to keep going, but (laughs) think of, I mean, we could press this. I'll leave the door open for a second. Hang on. Keep going. (laughs) Once we have a sense, which I think we're, we're all in accord with about the fundamental phenomenon of door, we can then look at its subspecies. We can, for example, look at Dutch doors. What does it mean to have a door that you choose to use as a window, but you also have the potential of immediately using it as a door? What does it mean to talk about um, squeaky hinges on a door? What does it mean to talk about a door that opens up? Instead of opening side to side, which is, in fact, the way um, Korean palaces are built uh, traditionally. So the doors open up to let people in and it also serve to keep the rain and, and sun from disturbing people on the inside. So you've got different kinds of doors. There's a book called uh, China Mountain Zhang by Maureen F. McHugh, in which uh, our main character, um, Zhang, um, goes to is set in the future uh, goes to china which is the leading nation in the world in those days and is trying to learn to use the the mental augmentative um technology that will allow him to become a truly world-class designer his mentor sets him to work in order to be able to come to get used to giving himself up to the machinery to be able to have the machinery become transparent to him the way uh Most of us don't think of a pen as a technology. We're just writing with it or a keyboard or whatever it is that we use. We just go through it. In order to have this massive artificial intelligence design augmentation technology become available to him, his mentor sets him the task of designing 200 different kinds of doors. And that's what he has to do. He can't just say, oh, it's a door. He has to design one kind of door and figure out what would make for a different kind of door, different kind of door. And when he finally designs 200 different kinds of doors, there's a description of the book. I I don't have the book at hand as if he falls backwards into a world. And it's, it's almost like the rabbit hole falling down backwards into a world in which his consciousness is just extending infinitely in all directions and he's capable of understanding how one moves and creates and shapes in other words having gone through the exercise of thinking of 200 different types of doors he goes into a different type of thought process the phenomenology changes the epistemology he learns a different way to know Uh, doors are not just um, in, in fantasy and science fiction simple demarkers demarcation zones liminals um, symbols that get us from one world to another they may get us to worlds that are fundamentally ontologically different from each other
0: mm. it made me, what you just said made me think about it, by designing 200 doors he's opened, opened Every possible direction, it sounds like. Um, Similarly, there's a a wonderful novel by Jack London called The Star Rover, which is based on a a true story about a... uh, Well, loosely based on a true story about a prisoner in a San Francisco prison who is uh, refusing to follow the rules imposed by the gate he was thrown through, (laughs) namely the prison. Uh And so they strap him up in a jacket um, that crushes him and makes him unable to move at all and that's his punishment is to be strapped endlessly into this and yet he manages to make a uh, a path a portal a door to uh, maybe a portal to uh, other places and times using uh, astral projection leaving his body Temporarily, uh, to visit uh, places where he can be free, and it's a it's a powerful story in in that even in confinement, uh, one can find ways out.
1: I have not read it. It sounds wonderful. Is it a precursor to the Demolished Man? It kind of is
0: um, similarly yeah that's that's another situation where it's it seems to be a a Rubicon like he's stuck he can't escape and yes he does it it is kind of a precursor to the demolished man that that I found it very fascinating in reading a lot of books in the last couple of years about you know early science fiction before rockets uh, how do they uh, Mr. Jim Moon, you and I did a, sh- a show on uh, hypnosis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this story by H.P. Lovecraft about two guys who travel the stars without leaving the Earth. They do it through astral projection, um, leaving their bodies and going out and coming back. And it's a, it's a powerful idea. And it, it seems to defy the restriction of the coffin of the body. <laughs> Right? And yeah, it's sort of died down now. We don't think about it much, but yeah, it is It is a precursor to The Demolished Man in that sense. I. I and also goes back to the original, um, uh, the other book that's by Bester. Um, the
1: Star is which, My Destination.
0: Which is a. Uh, oh, wait, no. It, it, which one is based on the. Count of Monte Cristo. No, I can't remember. Is it the demolished man or the stars, my destination,
1: the stars, my destination.
0: Yeah. The stars, my
1: destination is, is the one where he
0: jaunts. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's that Mm. one is I'm thinking of. And in that case, he, it's also about a man in prison, right? The Count of Monte Cristo can't escape, but he
1: does. He tunnels (laughs) his way out. In, uh, the star is my destination. The main character has been left abandoned. It's like the cold equations. He's mm-hmm. been left in a spaceship that from which he cannot get away. Um, and his if anger, I, if I recall, and power,
0: yeah. yeah, his anger and power and will, um, trigger the ability to teleport himself.
1: If only he were a different will, he would have had a subtle knife. <laughs> I, I guess, I guess, there are many doors uh, in life, and fiction keeps us knocking on them. Uh, as long as people are always going to be wondering what's on the other side, um, we'll always find more of them. I got one more, one more before we go. Now that I'm thinking, it's one of my,
0: it may be my favorite episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, and I, I thought for a time that it might have been based on a short story, but I don't think it is. It's about a uh, country bumpkin or a, uh, uh, anyways, a, a, a rural American <laughs> who, who when he dies in a hunting expedition um, finds himself uh, on the outside of a fence uh, with his dog who has also died and they wander along the fence until they come to a gate and when he gets to the gate uh, the gatekeeper Uh, says, you can come in, but your dog can't. Uh And he says, why is that? And he says, well, this is heaven. And he said, I don't want to go to any heaven. that wouldn't allow me to bring my dog. And, of course, it's hell. (laughs) It was a trick. Uh Because, of course, heaven. All dogs go to heaven. We know this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Interesting, we talk about gatekeepers. We don't talk in English about doorkeepers. No. But in Romance languages, we do talk about doorkeepers, right? We talk about a portero, um, a concierge who sits by the side of the door. Mm. Um, the the person who stays by the door to allow someone in or out of but monastery is called the porter. Um I wonder, except for that word porter, which in English is typically understood to mean someone who carries something uh, from that meaning of the word port, rather than someone who stays by the port, that is the place of entry and exit. Um, I wonder why it is that in, in English we talk about gatekeepers and not porters, but in Spanish, French, Italian, we talk about porters and not gatekeepers. For exactly the same function. Mm. I mean, maybe it's just an historical accident, but we also have cultural differences. I mean, we we know, for example, that uh, that the Battle of uh, uh, what is it in in 9 A.D. um, Tudorborg Forest Mm. uh, marks the boundary between wine drinkers and beer drinkers (laughs) for the the next two thousand years. You know, it just It works out. You get a cultural difference and you get wine drinkers on one side and beer drinkers on the other. I'm wondering if there's a cultural difference here that has romance speakers thinking more of doorkeepers and English speakers thinking of gatekeepers.
3: Well probably I, in England we still have Porter as gatekeeper, but in a very specialized sense in that um universities have porters who are the staff who uh, man the entrances to the colleges.
1: And exactly. They're
3: still very much, yeah, they're still that's one of the few things now where Porter is still gatekeeper. Right, and that's why uh, I mentioned monasteries. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: that's that's where modern that's where mm. current English universities Arise from right. They they follow the same yes, architecture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just uh, I'm surprised. It's hard to know um, as uh, Sapir and Whorf have taught us. It's hard to know uh, whether the <laughs> word gives rise to our sense of the phenomenon or our sense of the phenomenon mm-hmm. gives rise to our use of the word.
0: Um, I didn't watch past uh, the point where they asked the question at the end of. Whatever season of Lost it was, but uh, was there anything down that hatch, or was it not important?
3: I gave up. Uh, on. I, I tuned out as well, so I can't tell you. <laughs> so I
0: got I got to the point where I was curious about what the what was down the hatch, right? I thought that well,
1: Lost I... was the name of the show, but eventually it became the name of the audience. <laughs> yes, yeah. it was a
3: Rubicon I wasn't prepared to cross to find out. <laughs> <laughs>